Shalom and welcome everyone. My name is Noel Joshua Hadley. You've arrived at the Unexpected Cosmology in classes and session. Our current destination takes us into the realm of fiction, or pseudepigrapha. Uh, Hopefully I pronounced that right. Polly Hart is our guest, though to many of us listening in tonight, he needs little or no introduction. For the last several years, Polly has been an active part uh, I let me back that up. For the last several months, Polly has been an active part of our community. Though even before that, for a year and some change now, Polly has been submitting some brilliant short stories to cosmology, which is why I've asked him on tonight. Polly Hart is, of course, a writer, though first and foremost, a gentleman scholar, and you are about to find out why. Now, I was first introduced to Polly several years ago, near the very beginning of the Flat Earth Reawakening. Come to think of it, he was in fact one of the first flat earthists I ever encountered online, or in general. He has since told me that our initial phone conversation was indeed a strange one, but then again, so have most of our conversations since that time. I think every time Polly and I talk, it's usually over very strange matters. I was honored when Polly asked me to write the foreword to his latest book, one in which he had originally dubbed Fourth Enoch. And then when he sent me the final product in the mail, it was a read that I simply couldn't put down, uh, which is why I asked him on tonight. The book is titled The Word of Yahweh Unto Enoch. Again, it's fiction, but there's something about Polly's work in that he uses words to paint a canvas which transports me into a realm where it might be truly said that the truth is stranger than fiction. So without further delay, I wanted to bring Polly on. Polly, are you still with us in the land of the living? I can see you on there, so I know you're you're with us. Yes, hello. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna just gonna open this up, but first, uh, tell us the name or tell us where we can find your book. Okay, so if you go to Amazon.com, you can just type in Polly Hart, and it should pull up my profile page, uh, and you can look at it there. You can also find it at PollyHart.com and Truther.org. And uh, wherever fine books are sold, I think Barnes and Nobles is actually carrying it now too. Lovely, awesome. So again, the name of the book is um, <laughs> the, word uh, of the word of the word of Enoch. The <laughs> yes, the word the word of Yahweh unto Enoch. And what made you decide to write this book, or as I like to still call it, Fourth Enoch? What prompted <laughs> you to write this? Um, I don't actually know. I believe uh, that I was given talents, and so I'll use them when and where I can. Uh, I think that it's it's kind of a funny story in that, oh, thank you for that post there, that click, that link. Uh, the, the story came about because I was reading second, third, and another fourth Enoch that I actually found, which is actually fourth Enoch, another pseudepigrapha. Um, I was reading these, and I thought to myself, "By golly, these are trash!" And I'm sorry if people in the audience think that second, third Enoch are, are wonderful gems, and to some they could be. Um, but I really, in my heart, I, I found no quickening uh, from the Ruach, and I supposed myself to say, "Well." If these guys can tell a story about Enoch, I can too, and I'm just going to make it my best book ever. 
So that's basically where I came from. Uh, just a desire to accomplish more for him in a fictitious setting about a, a person that we all kind of adore. Uh, do it all together, and it turned out okay. Well, can you... So th this idea, this book actually takes place, I believe, if I recall, he was about like 50 years old or something at the time this book was um, focused on his life. So why did you feel specifically that he needed a prelude book? You know, the, the Adventures of Young Enoch. Yeah, the Adventures of Young Enoch, indeed. Uh, it starts out, in the morning of my 50th year of my birth, my life came to a swift and disastrous ruin. The voice of Elohim spoke to me as I worked in the fields of my grandfather, Mahalalel, with my father and my uncles and my brothers near the city of my forefather, Adam. The word of Yahweh came to me saying, and then he goes on and says, you know, take this rod, go measure Salem, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and, and the adventure begins there. Uh, I felt that having a, a, a prelude is kind of the only way I could sneak in, you know, as a writer and say, hey, here's a cool story y'all didn't know about. Uh, obviously, of course, that never really happened. It's all fiction. And by going in and saying, because we, we know he married at 65 and he had a wonderful life there until 300 years later when poof. And so I said, well, okay, if I'm going to, if I'm going to write something about him, I have to kind of get in before we all know what happened. So filling in the blank spaces of the text of the canonized Bible I, I felt I could I could I could uh, put my my two cents in as it were. So one of the things that really struck me, um, and, and this is what I like about your fiction, and the reason I one of the reasons I promote it is that you take uh, obviously every obviously what you write is it's it's fiction, but it's it's propagated or, or the platform is is a a realm of the of the real. Like I could I. Yeah. Uh, so excuse me, I'm sorry, my phone is going off. Um, and one of the things that really struck me in this book was the different uh, races of people you had in it. I don't know if that's the best way to describe it, but you had the, we all know that the, the Sethites, uh, the sons of Adam, also the, the Cainites, uh, the sons of Cain, but you also had, um, I don't even have in front of me how you worded it, like the, the, the pre-Adamites. You had like, uh, these completely different ideas of of people. So where did this where did this third um, uh, man come from? Okay, so I'll just kind of preface this whole uh, question answer by saying that this is uh, a supposed theology. So when I take a book of fiction and and write or, or coming up with a story. It's called world building, and so in this world, I'm taking a uh, a secondary train of thought that some people say uh, is is okay. Some people say complete bollocks, in my language. Some people say is uh, is you know hokum, uh, balderdash, whatever. Uh, the idea that Genesis is a chronological book came to me uh, 2008, 2006. And I started reading Genesis as a chronological book. So if you look at it that way and you look at the Hebrew of the, the whole shebang, uh, men, mankind, as it were, translated by the KJV, I think it's men or man, comes into the Hebrew word of hadam. With, it's just added with an H at the beginning. 
what is the Hebrew idea of men or mankind or all men. And so I thought, well, in this world building, also my novel, By the Gates of the Garden of Eden, in this world building, I'm going to have the men populate the earth, and then Yahweh is going to make the man to put into the garden. So you've got all of earth with all of men, and then you've got Adam, the man, in the garden, kind of at the middle there. And so to me, in 2006, 2008, or whenever it was, it answers some questions about, you know, where did where did Cain get his wife and, and all this other stuff. Uh, so I today, 2021, I kind of still think that, but I'm leaning towards the other way, and that's kind of a blessing of the way that Polly Hart is. Uh, I can believe five or six things at once, and I don't have a problem with it. You know, I can just put them in different boxes in my head, right? So uh, the, 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 in the book, The Word of Yahweh unto Enoch, he lives in a world where Adam is here and the Adamites are here. Cain is kind of over here, and the Cainites, maybe they'll intermarry over here, but most of the marriage from the Cainites came from the Hadam. And then this is where also Abel and then later on Seth uh, well, no, I don't think Abel ever really ever married. No, he didn't. So Seth gets his wife from the Hadam. So does that kind of help? Yes, it does. So would you say that, uh, and just help me elaborate on this theory and maybe how you're shifting away from it now, but would you say that the the Hadam were created on the sixth day, and then would it be fair to say that Adam was maybe the eighth day man? How do you place I don't that? believe that I... Yes and no. So I, I believe that Adam was created on the sixth day at the same time the Haram were, but that he was placed into the garden. Uh, the mud that was made, Adam, and then in the in the uh, Benizial Targum, we find the mud is from, what, Mount Moriah? Uh, and so I, 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 I think that I believe that, and then I don't believe that at the same time, and I kind of believe all at once and don't know really where I stand. But as a writer, that's a good thing. <laughs> Because it's great for imagination-wise. Um, if I can believe three things at once, and you know, I can just world build from there. My personal theology, I, I'm left. I'm left with the void, with with the with the with the scripture that uh, says that all men came from Adam. You know, Eve was the mother of all living, and so I have to go. On a personal note, I have to always adhere to sola scriptura. So I'm still kind of uh, stuck on this. Uh, kind of Hadam. Um, I'm kind of curious about this because when you look around, and I don't know, I don't know what you would look at in the world and go, okay, those are those people. Like if you would look at the the Neanderthals, if you would look at the, um, um, you know, some of the, I don't know what they call them, the Hobbit people. You know, I don't know if that's all like right. just baloney, if it's just all made up. Like where do you where do you place them? Um, hmm, good question. I know that when the islands of Great Britain and, and the rest of the UK, before the Sacks and the Eagles came in, uh, and the Danes came in and kind of populated that land, there were the, the Jutes, the Atticati, and the Picti. We know that the Picti from fossil record were about three or four feet tall. And so I don't know if that's like a remnant left over or some kind of mysterious inbreeding there. Uh, you look at the pygmy in Africa, they were, you know, three, four feet tall. Um, but does it 
does it matter to me now in an anti or sorry a post diluvian world versus the antediluvian world that they all just kind of got wiped out and started over with Noah and his kin? So I don't know what that pre and it's fascinating to me that the antediluvian world is so mysterious we we know not much of it uh, and that's why I have Enoch writing um, from Melchizedek gives him parchment and. To me, it's, it blows me away. Melchizedek is, is giving him parchment. I'm like, well, wait a minute. So I honestly think that the antediluvian world was Bronze Age. And I, and I find record and record of this, and I'm thinking these guys had, they had weapons, and they had tools, and they had these things. And it talks about Jabal and Jubal, uh, Sinjaza telling him how to build swords. I'm like, you know, uh, it's, it's so much that we don't know about the antediluvian world. Uh, why not? Full races of other men living here hominids, uh, Neanderthals, we don't know, um, but they're gone now. So does it matter? Yes. Does it matter? No. Yeah, and I, and I bring this up for everyone listening because the, the narrative, uh, Enoch's encounter with most of the people in this book are not the sons of Adam and not the sons of Cain. Uh, I think I'm correct in that, correct, Polly? And so, yeah. It, yeah. So moving on, early on in the book, there was a... I couldn't help but notice there was this one, I guess, I guess I'd call him a creature, uh, who called himself Yahweh, but wasn't. So can you elaborate on this interesting being? Okay. Uh, thanks, Mike. I appreciate that. So we're, we're introduced to Kokobel, the, uh, one of the great archons from First Enoch. And in First Enoch, you have a, a spreadsheet of who is who and who does what. And so I kind of took that idea uh, and, and said, okay, so here's this group of 20 guys, and here's this group of 10, here's this group of three, and said, okay, they're all these kind of like sects or divisions or, or, or castes or uh, you know, uh, socioeconomic different uh, iconoclasts or whatever. They're all their own peoples. And so they're going to have their reign over here. So here's Cocobel. And he's this dude, and he's like the watcher of the air, and he knows all the stars. And so what's he going to travel around on? Well, he's going to have a floating throne, right? Kind of like a mock version of, of, of you know, that the Hasatan take, likes to take every, every creation and turn it into invention for perversion of evil. And so I'm thinking of Ezekiel's throne, you know, this little throne here with these crazy cherubs and these floating wings, these wheels. And I'm like, okay, he's going to have something like that. So he has this throne, he goes around, and he makes this huge presentation to Enoch, and he says, hey, I'm Yahweh, and give me that scroll uh, that uh, was given to you, and uh, give it to me because I'm commanding you, and gives him this full presentation, and Enoch is like, ah, you know, he's completely terrified, uh, he's, he's, you know, he's shivering, he's shaking, he can't speak, and he, he, his hand is moving of his own accord, he wants to give it to him, but his mind takes control, he's like, nope, not going to give it to you. Uh, it, it turns out that Later, when Melchizedek comes out of Salem, he says, it, I saw everything through a vision, and you did a good job, Enoch. So, hey, pat on the back and a big hug and whatnot. So that was another little, uh, and you've talked about him twice now, that was another kind of little surprise that came into this, that you had uh, Melchizedek show up. And, of course, we, you know, in, in Scripture, in Genesis, we see him in the life of Abraham. Uh, in the, the city of Salem showing up. So how did you, yeah, why did you bring Meshelzedek into the story? 
thought it would be cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, cool. No, I mean, I, I kind of introduced it in the in the preface of the introduction of the book, why I brought him in, because those of us who've read the Targum, we find that he's actually, you know, hey, it's Shem. So it was interesting to me that I'm like, well, okay, what if it's not Shem? What if it's just this strange guy? And he is, you know, like the writer Hebrews and everybody else is saying, just as priest forever. So what would that look like if I took this snapshot and put it way back before the flood? What would be going on? And part of the reason that uh, Enoch gets the job is to go measure the old wall, the broken wall, the new wall. And so I'm thinking, okay, I'm, I'm adding all this crazy past into Salem that we didn't even know about. Uh, you know, it's, it's fiction. It's obviously fiction. And but I was I was thinking to myself, who else can Enoch meet? It was back then, and I didn't have a lot of answers. You know, it's because it's like, oh, I met my granddad. Yeah, big deal, right? Uh, hey, there's Adam. You know, hey, everybody else. So I'm like, who can I bring in? And uh, Melchizedek was the was the first guy that I found that I could do that with. No, that was that was a cool little uh, inclusion, and it's going to cause a lot of people to go, "Wait, what?" Because you know everyone you know knows the, the Shem connection, and you, it clearly was not Shem. So I thought that was that was pretty cool. All right, so you have a lot of angels in this book, and what what's the difference to you between say a, a seraph and an angel? Okay, <clears throat> I've got a sorry, I've got a description of the seraph. I'll read it to you here. No. Yes. No. Here it is. Okay. So here's the seraph uh, that kind of kind of guides Enoch from Salem to the city of Thinnis. And, and this is when he gets to the city of Thinnis, and he's he's just kind of like this floating being, and I don't really talk about him much as descriptive, uh, but I but I but I go into a full descriptive uh, paragraph here, and when he's talking to uh, what turns out to be Osiris. And as they spoke, the winged angel that had been guiding me became a burning fire and uncoiled himself to be like unto a great serpent. And it had six wings and eyes all about its skin, and it was like burning coals to look upon it. And as it uncoiled itself, it did grow in girth until it was five times the original shape, and the wings did blaze. Between the two top and the two second rows of wings there were two mighty arms, and in each arm there held a long pole with an accent at each end. And they he held low to the ground as he spake unto the giant. So that's just the seraph. Um, so seraphs, watchers, uh, cherubs, uh, archangels, angels, etc., messengers, and whatnot. I I'd like to say, hey, these guys had wings. This guy had a wing. These guys mostly don't have wings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, I believe it was Frank Peretti who kind of put this idea into my head. Uh, I met him after he wrote uh, this present darkness before he wrote this coming darkness, or was it? I can't remember the name of the second book. I'm some Pierce of the Darkness, I think it was. Anyway, he put the idea in my head, uh, and I asked him why, and he said, I don't know. It was just imagination. It was Hollywood. And I said, well, that's not cool. So I wanted to, I wanted to kind of say, all right, I'm going to go away from Frank Peretti, and they all have wings, and, and that's what Hollywood says, and cherubs are little tiny babies. And I don't want to do that at all. I want to give a more Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, uh, Revelation, uh, Job, a presentation of these guys are big, they're bad, they're crazy, and they have attributes that we've never even thought about before. Does that, does that make any, any sense at all? 
it does. Yeah, and I, I don't, I don't want to give too much away if there's anyone listening who wants to read this, but I love the, the relationship between Enoch and that and the one um, he was following a, a, a seraph. Was that true? Was that yeah, correct? That was, the, that was the seraph that I was talking about. Yeah, yeah, and he's following the seraph, and I love how the, if I recall, um, the seraph didn't even really understand necessarily the mission either that the seraph was just being loyal right. to the he most was high just being specifically loyal to the word of yahweh to him so he didn't know enoch's missions except that he was supposed to deliver him to the city yeah and i love how the the seraph like enoch doesn't know what he's doing the seraph doesn't know what he's doing they just have their part and enoch is supposed to follow the seraph and the seraph is going in the straight line pretty much and and then um and that's a, and then finally they end up in the city. I don't want to give away any more, um, aside from what Polly wants to give away. So since we're on the subject, win. since we're on the <laughs> since we're on the subject of angels, uh, who are who are the watchers uh, to you, Polly? When you think of the word watcher, what what characteristics? What you know, physicality? What comes to mind? That's a great question, Noel Joshua Hadley. I believe that when I think of the word watcher, now I'm going to have to parse myself into different chronological segments. So as a child, uh, I grew up in a strange charismatic church, and they talked about Enoch and, and all this other stuff, and there was a lot of goofiness. So then in adulthood at seminary uh, was kind of like, didn't we didn't talk about that stuff at all because it was, you know, not the Protestant canon. And so so later, going into later, at 2010, I started um, with my with my my main game, Gates of the Garden, or sorry, um, Empires and Generals. My, my game, Empires and Generals, led me into discovering uh, all sorts of things about the Archons, the Watchers, and Angel Kind, and that took me into St. Thomas Aquinas. Then I quickly reject, retracted from him because he's got full of hooey. Uh, there's some some stuff, but uh, I think it was 2008 that I really put it into into words and really kind of broke it down into a tiered structure from. And this is our good old friend Rob Skiba. Much of his things from the Archon Invasions, Part One and Two and Three, really helped me define that. So then I did go back to to Thomas, and I did say, okay, this is good, this is bad. Um, parsed everything down from every single angelology and demonology teacher that I could find, uh, ran into Michael Heiser, and what he said rang true about the Elohim Council, the B'nai Elohim. And so in, in, my, in my pyramids, pyramid scheme of who, who all these dudes are, not scheme really, but it's his scheme, you know, I guess you could call it a scheme. And his divine structure, uh, in, the, in that way, it's not a scheme, so there you go. Uh, that, <laughs> sorry. All of these, all these creatures have their own job, their own job description, and so they're given um, tools and uh, often physical attributes to help them. So, when I think of a winged messenger, I'm going to go ahead and if he has to be a fast winged messenger, I'm going to give him maybe wings somewhere. You know, if he's a seraph, he's going to be a snake. Uh, if he's again like in the chat, hobbits and elves, you know, then he's going to have something like that. So. Uh, now, I will tell you a, wow, I didn't plan on telling this. It must be the Ruach. I'm going to tell you a story about my mother at an airport when I was three. 
two and a half, and my mom was pregnant with my little brother in Jakarta, Indonesia, and he had to run, go to get the tickets, and it was her by the curb in 1973 with all the luggage. And I had long white hair because I hadn't had any pigmentation yet, so I had white hair, white eyebrows, and I was pure, I was an alabaster little boy. And she was tall, very tall woman, uh, 6'1", and back in the day, and even today that's tall for a woman, uh, kind of looked like a, a model. And so here we are, and then she's pregnant, and then with the, with the luggage. So no one approached her at all, and she looked to her left and saw a tall man. She said to me, he reminded me, or she, she said to me, it reminded her of a G-man, a government agent who had the, the black sunglasses and the black suit coat with the white shirt, and he was just standing there. So she felt very secure by her just standing there next to this man. Uh, later, when they got into the cab, my dad asked the taxi driver about him uh, because she had said to my dad about the man, and the taxi driver who had been there the whole time says, what man? What are you talking about? So uh, I know angels are real. <laughs> Uh, my mom saw one, and he didn't have any attributes that were were awkward or, or different or to make him stand out to uh, to uh, to her eyes. So in that way, they do disguise themselves as men. We know Abraham talked to some dudes. Uh, Lot met some dudes, the same guys. Uh, they didn't look like anything crazy, but when it came time to act, well, then suddenly things got real, as it were. Yeah, cool. Um, go ahead. I was just gonna say, basically, there's, there's just, they're just there, and if they need to change form to do a certain task, to drive a sword, uh, to keep people out of Eden, uh, that's in obviously in flames, of course, because what sword doesn't need to be in flames if you're driving someone out of the holy place of God? Uh, <laughs> then yeah, they're gonna have a weapon. They're gonna have a, a you know, here's a chariot with horses. You know, we're gonna we're gonna come down and get this guy that needs to be, you know, oh hey Elisha, see you later. So I don't know, different weapons, different different skill sets, different uh types of beings work the different attributes and their jobs and their in their in their their job description, I guess. Hey, you're gonna do this, you need these uh extra sandals or whatever. Okay, so now in the story that this the seraphim leads uh, Enoch to this the city. It's kind of like the way I was picturing it was like one of those monolithic cities that we see buried under the oceans and so on. I I think of like you know like tall stone staircases and and pyramids yes. and all sorts of stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, big big walls and everything. And I think the name of the if I'm pronouncing it right was Thinnis, uh, yes. the name of the city in your book. So is it a real place? And why did you decide on that city? Well, that takes me back to studying uh, Egyptology, Egypt mythos from my game, Empires and Generals, and I just really wanted to get into ancient history, find out all that I could about uh, what they had going on. So I kept digging and kept digging, and finally I came to the first myth of the Egyptians and how they said, well, all these guys basically came from the city of Thinnis. I was like, well, where the heck is that? Because I know that you've got, like, if you can see my screen, there's Memphis. There's the there's the exit of the Nile River. You know, here's Memphis, and here's what they call 
lower, the lower Nile, and this is where the main, throughout the dynasties, this is usually what people think of when they think of ancient Egypt, because here's like the you know, pyramids, you know, the three great pyramids of Giza, here's the, uh, the I don't know, anyway, pyramids everywhere. Uh, but anyways, you travel south, it's called the Upper Nile, and you've got all these great places, and then you've got Kush and Put, and uh, all, all sorts of areas down there, but kind of in the middle there, is desert now and, and in the book I have it as uh, great plains and great lush fields and I even threw a, a bone to the ancient tree guys uh, <laughs> I don't personally believe in the ancient great trees but anyway I was like it could be possible so let's put it in there um, so Thinnis is kind of in the middle between upper and lower Egypt and in the book uh, well yeah that'd give it away wouldn't it um, so yeah so Thinnis is there and it's a hidden city uh, you, you watch these Hollywood presentations about the wind swept away. It, it was even actually in uh, Midnight Mass, that, that, that show on uh, what's it, Netflix or whatever, uh, where the wind swept away and suddenly you've got this, oh, it was the premise of the movie Stargate. You know, suddenly there's this thing, and oh, what do we do with this thing? The, we, we see the sand's gone, now there's this city, I don't even know, let's go explore it, right? So this is one of those places that uh, isn't swept away yet, uh, or at, at all, we don't know. Uh, but but uh, there he is, and it's uh, it's a star fort, basically. Noel, you've got you know Penume over here. You've got the uh, Gadriel. You've got Asbiel. You've got Osiris Jasiri, as the book calls him, in the middle. Uh, and there's here's the door down here, and uh, the big the big gate of the city. Each each area is is run by a different watcher. They all have different control groups. Um, but but when I found Osiris, that's really what I wanted to say. Okay, so if Osiris, the, the, the idea behind Osiris, the god of the dead, the green guy, if you have him coming from Thinnis, how did that how did that come about? What did we like, understand about Thinnis? What do we expect from this place? What are the real ramifications of all of Egyptian mythos coming from one location that's now, if you find it, you know, you, you find a big desert spot. I was trying to look for it on, I think, Google Maps. And, uh, hey, you've got some great sand dunes there, but you really can't see anything. So I was uh, I was kind of wondering, you know, where did this first mythos of Egypt come from? Like Newt, uh, you know, uh, Amun-Ra, where, what's the idea behind that? So that's why I put them all in this one different little town and uh, just kind of had them spring up from there. Yeah, I really, I really enjoyed that part where you, you had, I, I don't know, did you describe it as a star fort in the book? Because that, that's really interesting. But they, I was really enjoying the different, uh, I guess you call them divine beings and and watchers and such that had authority over each other, and you know there was like, you know there there you would you would see the sun ruling. You didn't realize it was the son of of a divine being, and then he would take you to his father and. You know, the father is more in control, and um, I really enjoyed that whole aspect. I think there was one line you had in there that that they said of Enoch that he smelled of paradise. Was that? Yeah. Was, yeah, yeah. I, that was a nice little uh, uh, addition there that, you know, his line, like they could smell the sons of Adam, and they, they smelled like paradise. That was a nice little addition. Um, okay, so when you're describing this city of, of Thinnis, we, we talked about the... The, the pre-Adamites or whatever you want to call them and there. And I was, I was envisioning these little, like there's this one scene where all these women come down the staircase 
and I could envision the whole thing. They're all like, they're all naked. Uh, but I was envision they're like basically the harlots that are sent down to be um, used in this ceremony. But I was, I was imagining it was almost like really hairy, like something out of like Planet of the Apes or something like that. But then there's these really creepy uh, creatures in this city, and you were, you were, you were creeping me out, which I always love. You always do it in the right way, like you know, just when I think like everything is normal, you throw something at me. But so, what are all these? Because I'm still confused. What are, maybe <laughs> you can enlighten me? What are all these different? beast in the city these monsters that like live in the shadows of the city what's going on with that <clears throat> well you've actually addressed several aspects so real quick i never say starfort i say a lot of things that will hint and allude to something and depending on the the reader's uh, knowledge level which yours is one of the highest in the room that 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 person is going to say oh that might be oh that might be oh that might be so i never say it to other people who are brand new coming into it, then they're going to say, oh, that was cool. Wow, what was that thing? So so on that on that note, I, I want to come back and pull myself away and, and, and just basically discuss my, my vision and my purpose for writing because I want to write horror stories because what's the purpose of a horror story? To make it to the end alive. And so if you think about Jurassic Park, arachnophobia, you know, the, the, the fog, uh, these are all horror stories. And what's our hope? Our hope is in Yahuwah, salvation, or Adonai, you know, our, our Elohim, Him who made us. And so what better resolution to any horror story than to have salvation come from Him? So no matter what we do, you know, all these horror movies, well, we have to fight the mummies with science, you know, or we have to fight the, 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 the monster with this. And we just have to have faith. Or, or uh, if you watch a, a lot of Japanese uh, anime, uh, uh, you just have to be brave. You know, when you're brave enough, you win. So that, that, that solution never really sits with me uh, because I'm, I really believe that I, I'm nothing of myself. And so with him, all things are possible. So now to come back to it, uh, the... The ideas that we have of the what Rob Skiba calls incursions. So this first incursion that we have, we know that the Archons took the daughters of men or Hadam, and so that's who I have. I have these 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 little ladies are the they're the they're the they're made for their they're there for their womb basically. They're gestated for the creation of monsters, and so I I did have all sorts of chimeras. I went to Egyptian mythology and I said, okay, there's a dude with a wolf head. Could that possibly be a Nephilim? A Nephilim spirit from a watcher breeding with a human to create this thing. Or could it be a Nephilim breeding with a, breeding with a, a woman to have a, 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 sorry, could it be a watcher breeding with a Nephilim, a, a woman to have a Nephilim? This Nephilim is a creature. That creature breeds with a horse or a jackal or a, a stork or whatever, and then they have another Nephilim, a second-generation Nephilim. So when you read of uh, Gadriel, he talks about his son, Jasiri, and Jasiri talks about his progeny. He says, yes, some of them are bigger and dumber, but you know, some of them are smaller and wiser. Uh, you, you, don't, you know, you have these combinations of first, second, third, fourth, fifth generations, and depending on the breeding schedules, um, it's sad. Uh, it was horrible, and I, you know, would like to weep with these women in heaven for what happened to them, if any of them are there. Uh, but 
the the beasts that were created that we see in in Cheops and and uh, Bath and all these other places, ancient Egypt. I believe that they were real. I believe that they were antediluvian Nephilim, second, third, fourth generation, maybe first generation, that were created in the images of themselves. And they said, "Oh, look, a rhinoceros. Let's let's go mate with that." You know, don't mean to want to be rude or anything or, or or blunt, but basically that's what they were thinking. And you know, I can create a this if I mate with that. So yeah, I I meant it to be weird and uncanny. And I hope it played off well, because a lot of these guys are dumb. Like the main guard of Enoch, if you remember the main guard of him walking through the city, he was pretty slow, but he was buff, you know, buff and beefy. So he he had a role to play, just like a lot of the regular watchers and a lot of the angels had a role to play. But their Elohim, lowercase e, were the watchers. And so that's, that's who their direct line was to. Yeah, I was... I was able to uh, really identify with the the narrative, the perspective of Enoch in this, that he's going to the city and he's horrified by what he's seeing. And, um, you know, there was some stuff you really didn't hold back with. And I, I fully agree on a lot of this. We, you know, here, if you've ever been to a museum in America, you, you don't really get a sense of true history in America as you do when you're in Europe. And we were talking before this, uh, before we went live, about all the history that's been buried in America. And if they were truly to show the true artifacts in America, it would be the museums here would be wild. But right. when we, when my, when Sarah and I were living in Europe a couple years ago before this whole pandemic, and we were visiting the museums, I remember we were in uh, one museum in Oxford, which had the best mummy exhibit I've ever seen, and. They had actual like bust and carvings taken from Egypt of people with like lion heads or like a like a crocodile head and that kind of stuff. And I just remember we were walking along and the realization hit us like that's legit. Like that they were actually carving like, that was a carving of a real uh person. And, and anyways, that's crazy stuff. So um okay, so this this the city of Thinis. Um, I guess, you know, I'll, we, we kind of, you've already alluded to what happens to Thinnis. It's destroyed. Um, why did you, why did you destroy it? Why did you do it? That's a good question. And I, I would like to say that I would love to see your photos from, from your trips to these museums, if you have any, because I mean, this is a compliment, Noel. You're like the, the king of, of archive researching. It, it, the things that you come up with, the things, hey, I was looking at this the other day, and bam, and I'm like, what? So just, just a compliment there. Uh, I had to destroy Thinnis. I had to. If, if you recall, at the very beginning, he has a dream. He has several dreams and visions, and so uh, there's a writing device called Chekhov's gun, and Chekhov was a great Russian writer, and he had an idea that if you show a gun in Act 1, you've got to use it in Act 3. So the vision that Enoch has is of a city being destroyed with fire. And he doesn't know anything about what he's going to be doing. And, of course, this happens later. Thinnis is, is like Sodom and Gomorrah. Fiery darts come down and, and consume the whole place. And we, we have to do that. Uh, I had to do that for a writer to resolve with, with, with uh, my 
My idea of writing is that in the end, uh, real life should match up with, with my writing for the most part in my world building. I don't have to have it all the way, but I don't want to create Middle Earth. You know, I don't want to do a Rivendell. I don't want to do that kind of thing because that's not my calling. I thought it used to be, but I don't really want it to. I think the only story that I've put out there on unexpectedcosmology.com is Supply and Remand. It's about a, a, you know, a fictitious space thing. And this is one of the only stories that I've kept because it was so brilliant. I didn't know how to, to I didn't know how to throw it away without using it maybe just in a virtual reality world and I could save it that way. But but I resolved to always complete everything that I've written and have it be, oh, we're back in the real world. And as you look around reading one of my stories, you look around and you think, this could actually be true. Or there's a spiritual premise here that I haven't seen before. Or wow, I need to look more into this. So that's my as I came back from the whole idea of why I write horror, that's my secondary goal is to open the eyes of the blind because I was called to preach. I wasn't called to expound or, or use apologetics. And so I'm a I'm a goofy person who has lots of weird things to say. And what's my best medium? Uh, comedian, writer. I, I, I chose writer because I'm a horrible public speaker. So I had to burn it down, Noel. I just had to. It just had to be done. Yeah, you're. Um, yeah, that, that's definitely true. Both of those. Um, you could definitely see your um, your humor in the way you write and and so on. Anyways, that's. That's what I had for uh, this read. If there's anything more you want to talk about about the book, but I'd also be interested with what time we have left. We have uh, about 10 minutes left. I would love to hear more about what you've been working on recently with some of your translations. You've been working on the, uh, the Targum and also some other books. So maybe you can share that with us. Well, I'm showing you my card game. Down to Breast Facts. Oh yeah, the, the next—that's the flat Earth one, right? The next time I'm at your house, I want to personally play that game with you. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm working a little bit on down to brass facts. Uh, it's it is is a flat Earth card game. It's designed to sit on your bookshelf. That backwards. Sorry. There you go. Upside down and backwards. It's designed to sit on your bookshelf and. For you to pull out and say, hey, this is a flat earth card game, or just don't say that at all. If you have people who are your neighbors, hey, this is a great fun card game. And as you're playing it, you learn facts and science about and scriptures about the flat earth. Uh, but I am doing a myriad of other projects. I uh, there I paint, I paint some things. I'm working on boomerang still. I am uh, doing a, but most of my my push. Right now, and I just do this stuff when I'm bored, basically. Uh, but when I get uh, my hands hurt, ah, I got the cripple hand. I can't write because this is acting up again or whatever. So I'll go out there and, and do weird stuff. So my my writing is uh, how do you say uh, crazy? Basically, I, I write I write children's stories, and nobody wants to buy children's stories from a horror writer, much less a flat Earth horror writer. So what do I do? So I've rebranded my six children's one, two, three, four, seven, seven children's stories, um, and and put them out here. And I'm going to publish them under Mr. Lee, and they're going to be that's that. Uh, then I've got my 
my my weird fiction, which is the the, the majority of my stuff, is horror fiction, uh, and and that's still Polyheart. And then I've got the tra the translated stuff, the translation stuff. The only thing I have published so far is Testament of Job, and that's it's doing quite well. I've, I've, uh, I I'm blessing those who who need it, and and when I say doing quite well, I obviously do not mean financially, although that's a tertiary aspect of that whole idea, um, but. Hold on one second. But the other thing that I'm doing with writing is still Flat Earth. I have a lady from uh, Hong Kong who is putting my entire book, and she's translating it, uh, transliterating it word for word into Mandarin Chinese. I have another guy who is translating it into Polish and German and, and uh, Afrikaans and other, other languages. Uh, basically, the the book My Flat Earth, and it includes uh, fifteen hundred Flat Earth verses. So these big thrusts that I'm doing, if I get bored of of, of translating, which uh, I've been doing Genesis one through twenty five from Joshua, sorry Jonathan Benuziel's Targum, it is it is tough. It is tough. I uh, I appreciate Zen Garcia, and what he did was he you know copied and then pasted. Uh, but it's so, I mean, I've heard you stutter over some things before reading online, and I have too, reading it out loud, Noel. It's it's difficult to read that whole thing and understand what it's saying because you've got a, a 17, you know, gerunds and, and chunks and phrases that are making up this one sentence that's actually a paragraph, and it makes no sense to our modern mind what he's actually saying. So I splice it all up and put it back together. Uh, and it's it's very difficult. So I love it, hate it, and it's fun and it's disappointing at the same time because I wish I could go faster. I have so much to write. I've written, uh, I think it's 74 or 73 books now, and I would like to have created a library. Even though I only started writing in, in 2007. Oh, 2017. Yeah, 2017. Started writing then. Even though I wrote poetry since '94, basically I, I publish poetry, but nobody buys poetry. Nobody wants to read poetry. But I still got so much of it, writing you know, uh, 1,500 poems. There's a couple of good ones in there, so I'm going to put those out. So yeah, that answer your question. I mean, that's a lot of information to take on. Anyway. Yeah, I you know back in the day I used to write poetry too, and um, and I used to actually I I never stated this fact to anyone here before but i actually used you to, don't go have to, to break the news to all of us at once if you want to send a pm that's fine i used to go to poetry readings and read them out loud and um if you i, I quickly learned that if you want to be hated by everyone in the room um yeah like read read poetry because it's like the people who like if you if you if they don't like your work they hate you if they love your work they hate you so yeah that's <laughs> that's what it's like reading poetry in a room. So, um, well, I, I'd like to just interrupt real quick and say I used to uh, host uh, open mic night at the Gypsy Cafe in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I did it for a while, and I read poetry all the time. My one friend, Badger, that was his stage name, he said, it's easy, and I'm, it's the S word, so I won't say it all right. I'll say crappy. He said, it's, it's easy to write crappy poetry. It's so hard to write poetry that's specifically crappy. And so he did that. He would write really great poetry and then ruin it on purpose. 
Um, Cam, if you want to buy my book, uh, it's it's on there. It's um, let's see, a book of love and laughter is probably my best. I call it my grandma book because it's my best uh, lovey-dovey stuff for there. Uh, or I might just put some stuff out for free. I'm not sure. Either way. Okay, Polly. Um, we have a couple minutes left. Is there? You can tell us again where we can get your uh, flat Earth game because um, I, th I think everyone in this group uh, needs to uh, get Polly's game and play that. Tell us where you can get your game, uh, your book, any of your um, any of your stuff, and then any last words, anything you'd like to add before we close up. Okay. B a u l y h a r t dot com. So there you go. Noel, it has been an honor and a privilege and a blessing. And if you can ask my wife, she'd tell you I've been nervous all day. Uh, I have had the honor. It is a specific and complete wonderful privilege to be here at all. And all the people in the room and everybody else on YouTube and wherever else, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Polly. With that, we're going to end this session. I'm going to take a few minutes break, you know, a coffee break, bathroom break, and then we will be back on to talk about um, New Jerusalem, the Millennial Kingdom, and the Mud Flood. So thank you, Polly, for coming on, and please, everyone, stick around. We will, um, we will begin again in a few minutes.